This is a Diet of Brussels. Uh, it's the evening of the 17th of October, which means we've got a deal again. Um, yes, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about what this deal is and a little bit about where it's going. Um, I've kind of held off until we actually had some text because really we didn't have reliable enough reports to know what was what and also there were some basic questions which as we will see uh, at the time were not really very clear. I think the the starting point for any discussion of the text that the European Council has now signed off on is that it is almost the same uh, as the text that was signed off uh, back in November last year under Theresa May. And that's a really important point to make because you will be hearing an awful lot about how this is different, but you'll hear much less about how this is the same. So let's talk about how it is the same. Uh, what uh, was published today uh, was a set of documents, first of which was uh, a letter from the Commission to the European Council saying we recommend that you pursue this uh, and uh, accept it. The second of which was a revised text of the Irish Protocol, uh, which uh, had contained the backstop arrangements. The third part was a revision to the text of the political declaration, which talks about the future relationship. And then on the UK side, there was also a, a declaration about uh, consent mechanisms, which I'll come back to. Now, what those things do uh, differently is quite substantial, but it doesn't change the fact that the body of the withdrawal agreement text is untouched. So that means provisions on citizens' rights, on financial liabilities, on the institutional management of withdrawal, the transition arrangements, the dispute uh, resolution elements, including the role of the Court of Justice, all of that stays the same alongside the protocols on sovereign base areas, on Gibraltar, and all of the other appendices that are there in the text. Now, that matters because if we think back to last year and the criticism that Theresa May got, the criticism was not solely focused on backstop issues in the way that you might have the impression uh, from listening to political debate in the UK in the last few months. So all of those problems remain, and they are issues which haven't even been touched by this uh, renegotiation. And at the point that the British Parliament comes back to discuss these things, uh, it may well remember that it had more than one problem with that text. Having said that, you don't care about what's the same, you're caring about what's different, and of course you've already had explainers from me and everyone else about what the original text had. So what has changed? The, the key to understanding the changes is that there is a, a, a shift in the way that this government sees the ongoing future relationship with the EU compared to the previous government under Theresa May. The letter that Boris Johnson sent with his proposals the week before last talked about looking for a loose free trade agreement with 
the EU. So something much less than uh, a soft Brexit model where uh, the UK might be involved in the customs union and the single market. Now that is reflected in the political declaration. We've lost talk about uh, uh, the comprehensiveness of a uh, new relationship and instead we're talking about something that is fairly vanilla in the world of trading relations. Apart from that, you haven't really got a, a big shift in the, that political declaration. The one point that I will come back to is the level, level playing field provisions and we need to think about that in context of Ireland. But substantively, there's not much difference that results from that political declaration changing its language. Uh, it's, of course, still to be negotiated what that future relationship looks like. And just as in the original version, the government could have gone for something much less. So a future government could go for much more than this current provision. So what does matter then is what happens in the legally binding text of the withdrawal agreement itself, including those protocols. And that's where we come to the uh, Irish protocol. As you recall, the backstop idea was essentially one of a safety net, that in moving from membership through transition into a new relationship, there might be a possibility, given everything we know, that negotiations weren't there in time. And that would then jeopardise the uh, economic and political arrangements on the island of Ireland, uh, which would um, then compromise the Good Friday Agreement requirements and just peace and stability and the economy. So the idea of the backstop was really just until we can get that new comprehensive relationship in place, here's just something we can fall back on as a uh, make, uh, uh, make do arrangement. It's not ideal, but it's fine because neither party wants to stay in it. Because the, the British government now sees the future relationship rather differently and rather more distantly, the backstop arrangements have now become turned into the standing arrangements intended for Northern Ireland to say, we recognise we have obligations under the Good Friday Agreement, but we don't want these to be the uh, starting point of uh, a new relationship that might entangle the whole of the UK in a permanent way that we can't escape from. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's a really key point, that uh, by doing that, having that shift, um, and by the changes, we have introduced, uh, paradoxically, a mechanism for the UK to bring this system to an end for Northern Ireland, albeit one operationalised through uh, the Northern Irish uh, Assembly. But it's really intended to be there for as long as is needed. Uh, the intention is not that it's there uh, unless and until there is a new relationship. Uh, and I think if we don't recognise that fundamental point, we're going to miss uh, an awful lot of the, the purpose of that. Uh, and, and there is an irony, uh, as several people have noted already today, that um, having complained about this being a trap for Northern Ireland, and by extension for the UK, we actually have uh, seen the British government push for it to become a more standing arrangement than the backstop was ever intended to be.
Which brings us then to that notion of uh, permanence. And what we have seen here is one big shift, which is uh, in the, the, the process, which is a, a notion of consent. So on the, the backstop, uh, the agreement was that uh, you would use the backstop in the absence of uh, a future trading relationship. And then jointly, the EU and the UK would agree to stop using some or all of the backstop arrangements as those new provisions came in. So this was a real problem for, for British politicians because it meant that if the EU didn't agree, then the UK would be trapped in this uh, arrangement. And because uh, a lot of British politicians see this in purely zero-sum games, uh, that was bad for the, e for the UK, therefore it must be good for the EU. Aside from the fact that's not the case, uh, I think we have to, to recognise that that was a key part of what Johnson needed to secure in these negotiations. And so what he has been able to do, and I think it's, it's a, a credit to British negotiators that they have managed to find a different model, is introduce a new model for consent. Now, how does this consent mechanism work? Well, the model is that... Uh, with the entry into force of this uh, agreement, you'd have a four-year period after the end of transition. So remember, transition normally uh, ends at the end of 2020, so the end of next year. You can have up to two years extension, so up to the end of 2022. Uh, and given what we know, that seems fairly likely. Um, so we're then talking about a four-year period where the arrangements for Northern Ireland apply. At the end of that period, uh, the uh, Stormont's Assembly is given a, a, an option, uh, is asked to vote, it's not given the option, it's asked to vote on whether to remain aligned uh, to EU regulations and the uh, contents of the protocol or not. If they uh, agree to that, um, then it carries on for another four years. Um, and so the requirement there is a simple majority uh, of uh, MLAs. Um, however, if you can have a situation where you get uh, majority support on both the unionist and the nationalist side, so most of the MLAs have a designation one way or the other, if you can get majorities uh, on both sides, then you get an eight-year extension, so that you double the length. Um, and it's only if you have uh, a majority uh, against uh, that regulatory alignment and that maintenance of the protocol that uh, the system comes to an end with a, a two-year wind-down period. So it's not day one we vote, day two we, uh, um, we, we stop doing it. We have quite a long phasing out. So the idea here is to make sure that different communities are represented in the process. Neither unionists nor nationalists have or will have uh, a majority in the Assembly for the foreseeable future, which means that uh, you need to have some kind of uh, support uh, for whatever it is you're choosing to do, whether that's trying to collapse the deal or continue the deal. Uh, and so from the EU's perspective, really, this is about uh, trying to make sure that uh, you are getting uh, uh, a degree of certainty that otherwise would be absent. If you'd left it purely down to uh, the House of Commons to make that decision, 
uh, then the EU would be very unhappy about that kind of arrangement. And because this is cast as being uh, Northern Irish consent, uh, clearly it's close to uh, those who are involved, uh, and it gives an incentive to try and uh, make that uh, arrangement work. Now, one concern that's become uh, has emerged during the day, particularly from unionists, is that if you start getting into periods of 12 years uh, or eight years or even four years, then you end up with a risk of effective regulatory diversion. The, long, uh, the longer this goes on, the more it's likely the Northern Irish uh, regulatory alignment will take it away from the rest of the UK. Because if the UK is seeking to uh, avoid uh, the burden of EU regulation, then Northern Ireland is bound by this uh, protocol arrangement to uh, stick with it. So leaving the system becomes more and more painful over time uh, and raises the barrier. And particularly if that carries uh, Good Friday Agreement implications, then that also becomes uh, more problematic. That process issue about consent is at the heart of the changes that go along. Uh, and again, it's the uh, way in which the British uh, could sell a lot of the benefits. But there are also important substantive uh, differentiations that go along. The key one, I think, here is around customs. Uh, originally, uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK would stay when the backstop was operating in a temporary customs uh, arrangement, which would mean that you wouldn't need to have customs checks and it would all work and the, the UK would benefit from access to uh, the EU market. Now, the EU was never really very happy about that. Some talk during the past weeks about moving back to Northern Ireland only alignment with the EU customs union. But for the UK, that was seen as uh, an unacceptable uh, situation. So what the text now proposes is that Northern Ireland comes out of the EU's customs union and stays in the UK's customs uh, territory. So it means that uh, between Northern Ireland and uh, the rest of the UK, uh, you would be treating that as a single customs union. But because that carries an implication of border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, which, as we know all too well, is against what uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, envisages, um, you would uh, need to have a different system. And so what the, the revised protocol says is that in practical terms, you would treat Northern Ireland as if it were part of uh, the EU's customs union. So you won't have customs checks at the borders, but you will still have to pay tariffs uh, and duties on goods. So there are some exemptions for personal uh, elements um, and uh, some kind of de minimis uh, uh, elements. But the idea is, is that the UK would administer the collection of duties of goods entering Northern Ireland. Uh, it would apply whatever tariff is higher between the UK and the EU one. Uh, from uh, businesses doing the importing uh, or exporting. And uh, if it turns out that the goods were not carrying on into the EU, uh, if there was a difference in duties, then that would be reimbursed to businesses. So it's a bit of a faff, 
but it means that uh, you can uh, avoid border controls. You can also avoid having Northern Ireland in the EU's customs territory. And uh, potentially, I won't put it any stronger than that, you can do this in a way that is relatively secure and free from uh, abuse. That, I think, will have to be seen uh, as it goes along. The big problem with this, from the DUP uh, point of view, is that it means you will now have to do some checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, so uh, east-west uh, uh, trade. So in effect, on ferry crossings, on air links, uh, you'll have to have some kind of checks that go on. Now, the DUP is very much opposed to that because it rightly says this means Northern Ireland's been treated differently from the rest of the UK, which, as we know, is uh, the core of uh, what they uh, want to resist in the process. So it's an elegant solution in that it deals with one border, but it creates necessary problems at other borders, and the entire operation of the system, I think, will have to be uh, proved uh, in practice rather than uh, anything else. Um, beyond that customs issue, there have been some discussions with some light night uh, debates about VAT collection. Uh, that will also need some uh, ongoing work. Um, there will need to be some issues around uh, checks uh, on uh, entry into Northern Ireland because uh, potentially that becomes a, a way of uh, accessing the rest of the EU that might be problematic. And uh, some ongoing issues uh, on other more specific areas. All of those things are, however, very much uh, within a context of most of the protocol arrangements staying in place. The institutional arrangements, the joint committee, uh, as far as I can see, most of the specific bits of legislation that would be in effect don't really change at all. So what's make of all of this, if we put it together? It, I think if... It, you want to think of it in those terms. You have uh, a deal that allows number 10 to say it has uh, successfully renegotiated the text. It's got some concessions out of the EU, which it has. Uh, it limits uh, the uh, division uh, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And uh, importantly, it just gets the whole process moving on. The EU say they're happy with it. The current government's happy with it. And uh, as far as Boris Johnson will be telling you, this is all a step in the right direction to getting out at the end of October. Now, that deadline still remains exceedingly improbable for a number of reasons. Firstly, the government remains without a majority, uh, and by quite a lot. Uh, in the House of Commons and indeed the House of Lords. So the vote that will be on Saturday looks very hard to secure for the government. Uh, even if it does, I think there's enough of a question mark about whether that removes the need for an extension request that has to be made by Saturday. Um, the EU is 
clear, notwithstanding comments from Jean-Claude Juncker, that if asked for an extension, uh, it will give an extension. So um, I think at the moment it looks like the Ben Act will kick in on Saturday and one way or another the UK will be asking for an extension. Um, don't forget, it's not to, to get this deal signed off, it's ratified and in effect, you have to have the vote of uh, member states. You have to pass it by a qualified majority. Fine, you can do that very quickly. You need probably a couple of weeks with the European Parliament to process everything. It's got to go through the uh, Constitutional Affairs Committee, then go to a plenary vote. Um, and two weeks is probably the, the top speed you can do it at. The European Parliament has one or two other things it needs to think about. Most obviously the ongoing issues around selecting the new commission. And then the UK has to not only have a meaningful vote, which the government intends to hold on Saturday, it also needs to pass the withdrawal agreement bill, which will give legal force to this text in British law. Now, that uh, bill has not been seen by anybody. Uh, it will be a large, major piece of constitutional engineering. And the thought that you can get that through uh, two houses where you don't have a majority and where most people are ill-disposed to you, uh, in two weeks' time is, frankly, unrealistic. Um, it seems that talk about having a confirmatory referendum is not going to come to anything this week. It's, supporters don't think they have enough uh, backing uh, in the Commons. Uh, but even if you did, uh, that vote would not be enough to get this uh, or that particular element uh, occurring. So at the moment, we're looking at a situation where the government might well find that it can't pass a meaningful vote. It's then confronted with a request for an extension that it has to accede to. You then have uh, an extension, uh, and then we're into a vote of no confidence territory where nobody seems to be able to make up their mind about whether we're going for a very fast general election before Christmas, uh, and if we have a, a vote no confidence next week you can just about do it before Christmas but that's a really bad time of year to be holding an election whatever party you're in. Do you try and form a government of national unity and do something in the way of renegotiation uh, there? Uh, do you uh, try and hold off the vote of no confidence until the spring and then have a, a nice spring lovely weather uh, election at that point? And in the meantime, what do you do uh, in all of these cases? So uh, those who oppose the deal, of whom there are more MPs than there are supporters, as far as we can see, uh, don't agree about much other than their opposition. Um, and I think this has been the, the long-standing problem. So key things to watch out for in the next days are, does... Firstly, the EU maintain its very and quite impressive uh, solidity of support for this. Warm words, we welcome it, we hope it happens, and we'll stay stumm because we know that if we say anything, that might just make life much more difficult for the passage of this back in the UK. Um, everyone's been very well behaved so far, and uh, that might uh, stick for the time being. Secondly, what happens on Saturday? Firstly, does the government try and bring this as a meaningful vote? 
does it try to do something that more explicitly meets the requirements of the Ben Act to try and uh, avoid having to ask for an extension? Do opposition parties or rebels try and do any more to uh, amend the motion uh, for their own purposes? If so, what might those purposes be? It's the, the Ben Act has been picked over more than enough for people to feel that it's uh, pretty uh, solid uh, in what it forces the government to do. Um, but there may be a feeling that something else is required again. And then uh, whether or not it passes, uh, what happens next week? We've got the Queen's speech vote uh, at the beginning of next week. Uh, if the government loses that, what happens? Um, if there is an extension, uh, a need for an extension, is that extension request made or does uh, uh, somebody have to go to court to force the government to do it? All of these big questions by themselves, um, and I think really at this point we can't really do much more than flag them up as ones that will need answers uh, and need answers uh, relatively soon. So to pull that all together, we're talking here about a text that is very similar to the one that we've had for nearly a year, but in which there is a shift driven by the changing end goal of the British government. So moving from a uh, relatively close anticipated future relationship to a, uh, a more distant one. I mentioned at the beginning uh, the notion of a level playing field, so trying to keep common standards and protections uh, so that the UK wasn't trying to undercut uh, the EU. That language, which was in the protocol uh, and thus legally binding, has now moved into the political declaration, so it's, uh, it's not binding in the same kind of way. Now, there's a a discussion about whether this actually matters because in practice the EU might well decide that any future relationship imposes legal requirements on the UK to ensure that. But as far as business is concerned this points to a potentially more distant relationship, one with more friction, more barriers to trade which make it harder for them to move things along. So whilst we're looking at the changes on the backstop uh, arrangements uh, on Northern Ireland, we mustn't forget all the other things that are changing and also the other things that are staying the same. And I think one of the things we'll see is we're going to see a changing complexion of debate as things go along. And I think finally, I think we're likely to see once again a reminder that uh, the problem with Theresa May's deal wasn't just that backstop arrangement, it was also a lot of other things. So, lots to get on with. Uh, We'll talk about it as it happens, uh, and until then, uh, you probably need some rest. <laughs>